0: Don't hit skip. This episode of the World Nomads podcast is about Suriname.
1: Kim, what's in it? Well, Milton Cam was born and raised in Suriname and explains why he left and went back. Serrano Zalman runs Access Suriname Travel and they're committed to ethical and sustainable travel. And Diane, who ended up in Suriname unexpectedly.
2: Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveller.
1: Open book here. This episode of the podcast almost did not happen. With all our contacts, writers, bloggers, experts, etc., I could not find anyone that had been to Suriname. I even said to you, why are we doing this episode? (laughs) But we persisted and we can now share this incredible sounding country with
0: you. And the fact that nobody's, you can't find anybody who's been there, to, it's encouragement, incentive for me to go. I that know. Means it's going to be
1: fantastic. Well, once you've listened to it, you will want to
0: yeah, go. Sure. Look, it's the smallest country in South America and it's also the least populous one. Between 1667 and 1954, it was a Dutch colony. Okay, so in a country which is split between Portuguese, Brazil, and Spanish, yep. here's a tiny little speck where they speak Dutch. Uh, the, it wasn't; a, the, it stopped being a colony in 1975 when they uh, became an independent state, and it's the only territory outside Europe where Dutch is spoken by most of the people.
1: So, hashtag random. Uh, Totally. (laughs) Well, despite Suriname's low population, it is extremely diverse with people from various ethnicities. I knew I wouldn't be able to say that. I'll say it again. (laughs) Various ethnicities and religions. And our first guest is Diana Plater, an Australian journalist, author and travel writer who loves getting off the beaten track, so this is a perfect Perfect destination. And she's here in the studio with us. Welcome. Thanks very much. Why is it such a mysterious place? I think
3: partly because it's Dutch-speaking. It's not really seen as... It is part of Latin America, but it's not. It's part of South America. It's, you know, the top part of South America. But it's not seen as one of the Latin countries because it's a former Dutch colony that speaks Dutch. Uh, And so it's very well known in the Netherlands. There's lots and lots of um, tourists come direct from Amsterdam or whatever. to. So a a direct
1: flight? There's direct
3: flights there. So that's one way of getting there if you wanted to go there. Um, Or you have to go through the States and go via Miami um, and through the Caribbean. And otherwise, you can go overland from Brazil. I think. I mean, it's pretty tricky going overland. Okay, so it's hard, hard to get, get there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then is there? I'm, li-
0: th- I'm liking the sound of that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's increasingly, to to. it's, it's yeah.
3: a fabulous country.
0: Good. Yeah, it's just Why? so cool.
3: Um, well, it's, it's it's an amazing mix of people for one thing. Um, there's the former Dutch. There's the Amerindians, who are the indigenous people of the country. There were the Maroons, who are the descendants of escaped. Slaves, African slaves. Then they brought Indonesian workers, mainly from Java, to work the um, plantations after slavery was abolished. Um, and then there's all sorts of other mixes. Um, so can you imagine what the music's like?
1: You know? Wow. It oh, have an incredible music scene. And does yeah. it? Yeah, it does,
3: yeah, yeah. From reggae to Caribbean music, just African beats, all sorts of things, yeah. And, some you know, some really good jazz music musicians have come out of there as well.
1: You had an amazing experience though, which yeah. <laughs> for me feels like a, a, almost a once in a lifetime opportunity um, to meet the villagers on what river? Um, on the Upper Suriname River.
2: Yeah. So
3: they're floodwaters of the Amazon and uh, it, you're basically going into full on jungle. So when you think of the Amazon, um, you think of jungle, That's if you fly over it, that's all you see for miles and miles and miles. But when you actually go there, you're going down these, um, in canoes, um, with outboard motors, you know, so you fit about 12 people. Like
0: longboat ones. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, they, they finally built a road about 30 years ago and that goes, um, for about three hours from the capital and then you get off and you get in a, in one of those boats, um, one of the canoes, and then you're sort of going down, 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 and then you there's some points where you're shooting rapids, and it's the most clearest, beautiful water, gorgeous to swim in. It's also got the kind of rustier feel. Like some of the well, the villages we went to were those of the maroons, or um, that's what they're known as generally, or Saramacans. Um They were the they were the um, slaves who escaped and rebelled. Um, in the 17th century, and um, made their way down the jungle, down the rivers, learned how to use how to um, grow crops. When the main crop is cassava, um, from the Amerindians, and more or less displaced them, took over their villages in a way. Amerindians moved further down and more and more into the Amazon, and uh, and then they just had this closed society for like 300 years, and it was an oral society, um, an oral oral culture. So their memories are incredible and they um they they memorize all what they call the leaders or the chiefs of the villages are known as captains because yeah. they're thinking of the captains that were yep. on the slave ships yep. and they memorize their names from the ones that first came you know and To the ones to you know, three hundred years later to today.
1: Tell yeah. me that story that you were that you mentioned where you thought this this guy was you know affirmative listening basically.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, I was with a group of um, Australian, uh, actually European travel agents. They weren't Australians. Um, who were invited there to talk about tourism possibilities and how they can improve tourism in the country. So they invited us to a village meeting. And um, while I'm there, I could see this guy just sort of going, hmm, hmm, yeah, yeah, nodding his head, hmm. And I'm going, wow, I wonder what he's what – who is that guy? So I asked the guide at the end um, who was here and he said, well, he's like the secretary. He's the one who takes the notes in his head and remembers the whole meeting – you know from beginning to end and if there's any dispute or any problem you go to him and you don't dispute him because he does have that memory and he can tell you who said this and who said that
1: and when it was said. And that that, re- that is remarkable, really, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I love I th- it.
0: I think my wife's one of those. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, really, remembers everything. Yeah, no,
0: but you, five years ago, you said. Okay.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so, so you <laughs> went yeah. with a group of travel um, agents, you said, to explore possibilities for, t- for tourism. This sounds
0: worrying. They, we don't want mass tourism in a place. No, like but you. who no. is it? Yeah. Was
1: it is it the agents that want it, or is it the maroons? They want it. The right. maroons want. They don't
3: want. They don't want it, the place to be destroyed. They want it controlled. So we stayed at lodges, and which are either owned by maroon communities or leased to others who run them for them. So the main one we stayed at was a place called Dan Patty. And that had been set up, there was a shocking civil war in the 1980s. And after that, they needed development help and health help and so on. And so it was set up as a way to try and raise some money to improve the conditions in the, um, in the villages. And, for, for example, pr- improving the water situation, the health, a kindergarten. And so the women, because the women go out and work in the fields and somewhere for the kids to go to. So things like that. So they just see it as a way of bringing in money that um, that they wouldn't normally get. So, yeah, they say, yeah, we want to just hurry up. You choose slow, keep moving.
1: Now you mentioned <laughs> the music then being so fantastic. What's the dancing like and
3: art? The dancing by the women is fabulous and they wear these sort of applique skirts called pangis that they get... Ha- it's a matrilineal society, actually. I'm t- talking about the maroons. I'm talking about the maroons here. Yes, great. Um, so the women get handed down these skirts by their, you know, mothers and grandmothers and then they're the ones that more or less choose the husband and the husband has to show that, you know, he's got enough pots and pans and whatever to, you know, to be a good husband and then they decide on it. So they came and did this this um, dancing for us and you can imagine, you know, the gorgeous... Strong African bodies, yes, and, and um, they're very feisty and quite cheeky and rude. And apparently, in the in the days when the rebellions were going on, when they were fighting against the um, the Dutch, the women would be dancing for the Dutch, and the men would be escaping. So the women would be helping them get out and you know wow. and get off the plantations. Because the thing about Suriname also is that it was um, considered like the Worst place for a slave to be sent to. So, if you were a bit rebellious or trouble in the Caribbean or somewhere else, you got sent to Suriname. So, it was really, really cruel.
1: Just incredible to whet my appetite to know more about this place. Thank Serename. you. Thank you, Diana. And her latest book, by the way, is Whale Rock, which has been awarded gold for popular literary fiction in the 2019 Global Ebook Awards. So congrats for that. Yeah, now, well if we did feature details on the book in our Facebook page, which we'd love you to join. Just search for the World Nomads podcast, join in the conversation about travel, get some behind-the-scenes stuff and even
0: giveaways. Mm, yeah, we're working on even more of those. Look, yep. Diana mentioned the Dampati River Lodge. So let's find out more about it from Serrano, Alman who runs Access Suriname Travel and is one of the driving forces behind the push to open Suriname up to travellers as a destination as he explains why.
4: Yeah, I think we realise now that uh, Suriname has a, uh, a huge amount of unspoiled nature. We are one of the few countries in the world with uh, 92% uh, tropical rainforest coverage which is very unique in the world, a, a undiscovered jam. Well, you can say that again. We, can, we, we,
1: we can't find anyone that's been there. It's been very <laughs> difficult.
4: <laughs> Even if I go to Miami, which is very close, and I was with in sports uh, competition with my daughter in uh, Wisconsin in the US, people didn't know where Suriname was. So it's very unknown in the world.
1: But so culturally rich because you've got so many indigenous groups, and then there's also a Jewish community. So, walk us through that.
4: Yes, you know, there are many countries and cities that are multicultural. I mean, if you look at New York, I think New York alone has 52 uh, ethnic groups or, or, or nationalities. Suriname is, is less, but the strong point of Suriname is every group is equal. So the experience that you're in a real multicultural country where everybody is very warm and everybody is very proud and everybody is equal, all these groups, the Japanese, the Chinese, the uh, East Indian people, the the European people, the black people, the indigenous uh, uh, Red Indian, uh, Amerindian people, they all feel alike, synonym. Suriname people, and that makes it unique and, and, and enhance the experience that you're in a multicultural country. Another thing is that due to history, all these groups, they live together very well. Suriname is the only country in the world where a mosque is standing besides the, 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 the synagogue and where the groups use each other's parking line when the one's parking is full. Fully part, so that that is unique, and we as Sudan people we didn't realize this because we grown we are we, we grown up like this, and now with some people and a little tourism is starting uh, and all these people saying wow it's so nice that everybody marries everybody that Hindustani marries Japanese that black people marry Chinese that uh, how is this possible? Well, it is, and now. Uh, together with, with the uh, awareness on, on the ecological failure uh, that we have with this amazing Amazon forest that we have, in which we have several traditional tribes living, of which the Maroons, with our descendants from the slaves, they are living in this Amazon forest for 300 years now, still the way they left Africa. I mean, the tradition that you have, the African tradition that you have in our Amazon forest, is long forgotten in Africa, because the development there went, it developed, and here they stayed in the forest. So, Suriname is many different worlds. We have the part where uh, we have this lodge, uh, Friedrichsdorf, which is in the old plantation uh, region, and you won't believe me, but in this area, it's approximately uh, 400 square kilometers. It's an island in, in the coastal area. There are only Asian people living. I mean, there is no other ethnic group than Asian. And everybody in the same, at the same time feels very Surinamese. And that is the strange twist in Suriname. Yeah, it's a, it's a special country. Well,
1: it sounds special like country. a ut- utopia. It sounds really. like
4: utopia. Yeah,
1: why, why would you want to open that up? <laughs> you know, keep it a secret.
4: Uh, I, I don't know. We like to share it because when people come, they love Suriname. So it's a small, unknown country. But the experience of the tourists that come, the few that come, <laughs> but they are not much, they love it. They get very high ratings. So I think tourism is a big chance for us to preserve nature, to uh, develop and and enhance culture, to share art and to keep things uh, sustainable.
1: You believe that tourism should be well balanced in terms of people, planet and profit. So how are you hoping to achieve that?
4: We have the resort Nampati Rift and that is in the region of the maroon people. When you're in the region, you think you're in Africa. You you would swear you're in Africa. I I mean, there is nothing that is not African there. The people, the way they live, the traditions, everything. 25,000 people in in, in the region, in the Amazon. What we do with these people, we took over the lodge. We have a huge uh, project for 12 villages surrounding the lodge doing uh, educational things for the, for the uh, youths. We do health care for the elderly people. And we have this lodge totally managed by local people. I mean, from the cook, the person that makes the bread, the guides, the hospitality crew, the manager, everybody on location is locally trained and they do a fantastic job. What we do with uh, preserving nature is uh, we try uh, an awareness among the villages that we work with, is 12 villages, on waste management. Everything is shipped back to Paramaribo. We do reuse of everything, plastics, only reusable things. Uh, we do uh, buying everything from the local people everything, so uh, in, in every aspect that we can maintain nature and, and strengthen the local people, we do it.
1: Well, fingers and crossed now. that you can balance both, opening it up to, to travellers, tourists, but remaining so unique. And would you welcome us, yes. Serrano? Can we, we come and up? do a podcast from there? <laughs> yeah, we'd like to do a podcast from the dampaddy Lodge.
4: Yeah, you're more than welcome. More than welcome. As soon as you get here, you're our guest.
1: Just be very careful that you said that's on tape. (laughs) 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 We (laughs) will. You may laugh, Serrano, you may laugh. And great to hear they embrace support and encourage ecotourism. By the way, we have a special episode, Phil, coming up on sustainable and ethical travel. So yep. make sure you subscribe to the World Nomads podcast from wherever you get your favourite podcasts so you don't miss that. But what's news?
0: Okay, dust off your cameras and start shooting. The next World Nomads Photography Scholarship is about to be launched. Uh, this is at the time when we recorded this uh, in mid-October. Visit worldnomads.com forward slash Create for details. Last year's winner won a photography trip to Morocco. Where will it be this year? Ooh, the anticipation. Okay. Uh, do you take anything odd or unusual with you when you travel, Kim? Because, personality, yeah. <laughs> several of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm asking this because I heard from somebody who's a freelance writer for the Washington Post, and they were preparing a piece to submit to the post. So, we get I thought that was a good thing to you know, we're a travel company, so I thought it was a good thing to get a collection of responses from the people in the business, and also that's one of the things we did on the World Nomads uh, Facebook group as well. So, here are a few that we got Emily, who's uh, Boss here, she takes a sketch pad with her because well, she likes to do some drawing. She's arty, yeah. She's very arty. Um, this is an oldie but a goodie from World Nomads. Take a doorstop because if you're staying in a hostel, sometimes they've got really dodgy locks on them so you can doorstop stops people breaking in. Um, Kate says uh, she packs a smoke detector for the same reason, dodgy hotels and hostels where they don't have their own fire uh, detectors. That's a ripper one, really. I, yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't stay It's just like. Oh, I did. Well, you know, like seriously, if you were, well, I have with rats running over the place as well. That was a terrible night's sleep. But that is one of the things that you look at and you go, oh, "There's actually no smoke detectors in here. What sort of place am I staying at? Am I got a better option somewhere?"
1: Yeah. Well, I booked a place in Canterbury recently, and yes, I, it was the first thing I checked for, and they had one, but they didn't have things like a mattress protector. On oh, the right. bed. Ew. Ew. <laughs> I just I just chose to have a few drinks and forget about that.
0: <laughs> well, that's one of the other things that I, I spotted. Pe- the, the results from this, asking the people this are still rolling in and somebody said that they always take a sleeping bag liner.
1: Yeah, good for idea. For exactly
0: that reason, yeah. which is a good one. And
1: they right? still can, honestly, they just fold up to nothing.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, Matthew says he carries four pegs because uh, he needs a lot of darkness at night to sleep. So he uses the pegs to shut the gap that always shows up in the curtains.
1: Sensational idea.
0: I actually was staying in Helsinki – in the midsummer, so of course it never gets properly dark there. And sometimes when you when you've been at the vodka ice bar, you yeah. need a dark room. <laughs> yeah. So I actually went out and bought bulldog clips. I actually had to find a you know nice stationery office or newsagent and buy bulldog clips when I was in Helsinki.
1: Well, I was surprised in Japan because the, the land of the rising sun, oh, yeah. yeah, does rise <laughs> at about three in the morning. Is that right? Yeah, it was crazy.
0: It's
1: crazy. Okay. So I, was, I spent a lot of time awake in Japan.
0: <laughs> um, Christina uh, Tana in uh, our Oakland office takes chopsticks because they hold down blankets and sarongs for, on the beach for lying on them and they can be, you know, rigged that up for a privacy curtain in your hostel using those. <laughs> uh, and, you, you know, you can use them as clean utensils when you're doing street food, which is really nice. Yep. Christy McCarthy packs gaffer tape. Um, She says she's repaired ripped backpacks in Southeast Asia and helped bind bits of her four-wheel drive back together. (laughs) After it's, you know, fallen apart after 1,000Ks of uh, travel on corrugated roads. A few years ago, a friend who's a good Catholic gave Natanya, one of our Facebook friends, a St. Christopher medal and told her to keep it in a suitcase. Of course, St. Christopher is the patron saint of travelers. And she says it's been in her suitcase ever since. That's and she's nice still tip. traveling, so it must be working.
1: Yeah, nice gift. Uh, anything else to wrap up travel news?
0: Yeah, look, can I just say, I've just read this as well. And, um, you know, Train Street that goes through Hanoi, yes. where the the vendors have to move all the food off while the train comes through every day. Just recently, there's been a number of illegal cafes have been opening up and they've been advertising, come and sit here and have a you know a drink and wait for the train to come through. You can get really good photos of it. But people taking selfies haven't been getting out of the way of the train and it's had to slam on the emergency brakes a couple of times. So, you know, they're shutting down some of the cafes. And
1: Why do it? We've mentioned it quite a few times in travel news in the podcast. People are cra- crazy, go to crazy lengths to get the perfect photo, don't
0: yeah, they? Yeah, I know. I, and we were just talking you it's like when you're taking a selfie, you should get a message that comes up that says objects behind you may be closer than they appear, <laughs> like you get on mirrors.
1: Like <laughs> I that. like that, I like that. All right, that'll well, do me. Cheers for that. Back to Suriname and still to come, Milton Cam. By the way, mm-hmm. Milton's a bit of a... Uh, get he works as a cinematographer, including over twenty feature films, and his television credits include Amazon Prime's American Playboy, the Hugh Hefner story, Netflix's <laughs> Roman yeah. Empire, yeah. Reign of Blood, Nat Geo's American Genius, and the History Channel's King Ping. Okay. from Suriname, from Suriname, sorry. Um, But it's his story of growing up, leaving the country and returning that we'll hear about. But let's get Diane's story first, where she kind of ended up in Suriname by default.
5: It was actually a somewhat mostly conscious decision. We were actually sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, So we had come from um, St Helena and then Ascension Island. It was my husband. My daughter and our pussy cat on our own boat, um, and we were trying to choose our landfall. It just Suriname seemed the most interesting of the countries we had to choose from out of the Guyanas.
1: So, what was interesting about it?
5: I tend to be intrigued by off the beaten path places and places that I can't find any information about. So, um, <laughs> we all know about the Amazon, and and that's sort of well known. But I was I was intrigued to be on another sort of jungle river in, well, in the jungle. <laughs> what, what's it like on the
1: ground? Does it feel like a melting pot of cultures?
5: It really does. It's probably one of the more uniquely diverse countries that we spent time in, in that everybody looked like they could be from anywhere else in the world, but um, most people were very distinctly Suramanese, or I'm not actually sure what you call somebody who's native to the area. So um, it's it's very colorful in that the clothing, people wear really colorful clothing, but not the same colorful clothing. There'll be people who will look African and people who will look Caribbean and people who will look Central American. And um, and they're all speaking a, a, a language that was difficult. There was some Dutch in there, but it, it's definitely its own language. Um, but a lot of people also speak English. So it just, it felt like kind of a celebratory culture and a neat melting pot, it just kind of has a very, very warm feel to it when you walk down the streets and people are quite friendly.
1: So at this point, you're loving your Suriname experience. And then what happens with your husband?
5: <laughs> we are loving our Suriname experience. We're um, At this point, we've made our way up the river to a small town called Domburg, which is right on the river. And it's sort of the access point if you want to go deeper into the jungle. And um, we were working with some local people to plan this deeper excursion. Um, and he he actually was alone on the boat. I was at shore. Um, there's lots of little restaurants um, that are quite friendly. They're kind of uh, some expats, but they just kind of um, go hang out. And I was there using their Wi-Fi and got a call from the boat that he was not well. And he actually thought he was having some sort of heart attack. Um, he's not old enough for a heart attack, but it was, he was having chest pain so locals helped me get him they don't have ambulance service is not something that you rely on there so um he was loaded up into a locals pickup truck and taken to the hospital and taken to the emergency ward, where um, we joined the line with everybody else and um when he was seen they did feel that there was something going on with his heart so he was admitted to the cardiac care unit and at this point, we <laughs> we discovered that we had known that there was a deep recession happening, but we didn't realize to the degree the currency crisis affected your ability to do things that cost a lot of money. So um, at the hospital, they were um, requiring everything to be paid in U.S. dollars in advance, um, which meant visiting a number of banks and trying to do that and knowing he was in the hospital needing care. Um, so we did that and had a number of people who helped out to sort of bring the pile of cash up to what was required for the deposit. And he was thoroughly checked out and ended up having some heart issues that they were managed, managed to stabilize. And, um, the care there was not, not pretty in that the hospitals are run down, but, um, the doctors were all trained in the Netherlands and they all spoke English and Dutch. And it was very, um, comfortable care in that they were able to reassure us about what was going on and explain everything and all the machinery was what you would expect in a, in a hospital. He recovered there, um, but it was four days in the hospital there.
1: Did you continue on your Suriname journey or, or uh, head back to the boat?
5: we We opted to just sort of um, we didn 't want to go too far from medical care, so we just sort of immersed in our local community a little bit more rather than going way up the river we We went to local celebrations um, we went to the songbird competitions, which are a, a fascinating Caribbean cultural thing that i 'd never heard of before, where um, the songbirds um, they see how long they can sing for. Um, uninterrupted and that's it's quite neat and everybody seems to carry their birds around and and we went to um Juneteenth occurred while we were there so that's the it's kind of a, a recognition as well as a celebration of the end of slavery so um that, that was a pretty moving experience.
1: What would your advice be to somebody thinking of travelling to Suriname? I'm, I'm sensing, I don't want to answer the question for you, but the longer you're there, the better to really immerse yourself in what seems to be a whole lot of different cultures.
5: I think so. I, and I think because there's just not that much known... Or, or written about it, um, to do trips into the jungle, which is what we had really hoped to do. And we have friends who did go on and do so. Um, those aren't through great big companies and that kind of thing. So, um, doing that kind of trip is really about sort of spending time in a community and finding out who does those kind of trips and, and, and feeling comfortable with the person you're going with because the interior of the country is definitely not a place um, that they recommend you go wander on your own. It's it's encouraged to go with somebody who has a good sense of it. Um, we found... Um just getting to know local people made a, a huge difference to our experience and a really big difference to our understanding of what was happening around us. There's there's an authenticity to it. It's not dressed up for tourists. It's certainly you don't have, you know, there's some neat museums and there's some beautiful heritage buildings to see. But for the most part, what you're there for is um, just to sort of immerse in a culture that's really doing its own thing. It's, it's not Um, trying to be anything other than what it is.
1: And it does sound pretty spectacular. Thank you for that, Diane. In 1987, Milton Cam left Suriname. Only to find his way back home with a camera taking photos for his books or for his book, actually, Points of Recognition, Suriname's Indigenous Peoples in the 21st Century, which you've heard so much about yeah. in this podcast. So I think we'll just let Milton pick up the story.
2: Well, I was born and raised in Suriname. I went to school there. I uh, I didn't finish my high school because at the time there was a um, there were some struggles in the country, political Uh, struggles um, that amounted to a uh, a guerrilla war. Um, Surum had been independent for about five years, from 1975 to 1980. Um, And in 1980, a military takeover um, introduced a a dictatorship period that lasted for, I believe, anywhere between, depending on who you speak to, um, anywhere between 8 to 10, 12 years um, and at the time that I I was uh, about to finish high school, the uh, the, the the war between uh, the military and and rebels was in intensifying, and for me it became clear that I was going to be possibly be drafted into the army and and therefore having to to go and fight a war that I was not uh, inclined to take part in, um, and I decided uh, pretty early on when the signs came that I was going to leave Suriname and. Um, the choice to me was to either go to the Netherlands, which I think would be the um, the very um, obvious thing for most Surinamese people to do, who would leave the country, or I um, I had the choice also of going to New York, which I much preferred because I felt that to me New York was much more a bigger world than the Netherlands, where I felt that if I were to come or go to the Netherlands, I would I would just go into a small Surinamese community and probably never <laughs> leave. That was my uh, my my thought at the moment. Um, so I went to New York instead, and I um I've um I left Suriname in 1987, um, went to school in New York, uh, did fine arts and film, and um, and eventually became a, a U.S. citizen. But as as friends uh, as a friend had told me uh, once, every seven or eight years, a person is going to find themselves getting quite homesick or missing something of their past. And that sort of happened to me as well in a way because after seven, eight years, I began to think about Suriname and about um, going back there. But I didn't really have the means to go back and, and 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 visit because I was still struggling trying to make it work, trying to pay the bills, trying to get through school. So um, that episode kind of passed. Um, it was about 20 years after arriving for the first time in, in New York that I really began to feel... Um, not like I was missing through sure, and I'm quite, you know, heavily. And I think it came partially with having, at that time, already a career in, in, in cinematography. I um, I was shooting narratives, documentaries, things like that. And there was one documentary that I was in, in, involved with, which took me all the way to New, New Mexico to, uh, to film a powwow um, of Native Americans, which is where Native American dancers from um, many different tribes in the U.S. as well as in Canada would come together to celebrate their culture. Um, that I I was so moved um, by by that event because it's the first time I actually really saw and and met and heard um, Americans, real Americans, not Americans who are uh, from a, a past in Europe or elsewhere, but but Americans who were. Um, you know, native to the country. And that really moved me. And while seeing this event and filming it, I began to really think about Suriname and about how I I would have liked to have had a similar experience in Suriname, which I never had. So the uh, the idea of going back to Suriname um, began, began to take real form uh, during that event. So, um, so the urge to go back really, really did take a hold of me. And I decided to go back um, uh, that same year in 2007 um, not knowing what kind of impact it would have had on me, um, you know, when I when I flew back from from New York to uh, to New York uh, to Suriname, as as many Surinamese will tell you when they come back to the country after a long absence, the moment the airplane uh, opens, the door opens, and you 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 go out on the tarmac. You you smell the the warm, moist air of the rainforest around and and the concrete of the tarmac of the airport, and that 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 smell really just comes right back at you and 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 really fills you with a sense of you know i've arrived so for me that was the same thing and and coming back to suriname in 2007 uh, to the city of paramaribo where, where i grew up was um was was akin to being i guess you could say in love and um and 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 being a kid in a in in a in a toy store seeing things that are are very familiar but at the same time still um, very fresh because I was coming back after twenty years, not having, you know, seen anything of Suriname in, in, in this period of time.
1: So at this point, then um, tell us about the project that led to to the book and the beautiful photographs that uh, that you took.
2: I took a camera back with me to Suriname, a proper camera, and I I, I really indulged in in taking pictures of everything I could, um, whether it's in the city, um, re- getting reintroduced to the 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 mosaic of different ethnic uh, and cultural groups um, that you, you'll you find there, as well as the rainforest, the beautiful, expansive uh, rainforest that Suriname has. And I, I was taking pictures of everything and anything, uh, whether it was the rain or whether it was funerals or events that are happening among the different um, cultures. I really wanted to explore Suriname through my camera. And that kind of brought me to the idea of, perhaps doing a series of, of photo books, um, each of which would detail one of the five or more um, ethnic groups in Suriname. And it was obvious for me that I needed to start with the, the group that was there the longest, which are the indigenous people of Suriname. Um, so I decided to, to come back the next year in 2008 and begin work, work with that on that. Um, and the first thing I did to... To to start my investigation uh, of this 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 little known population group is to to go and meet with uh, the organization that represents them. Um, in this case, it's the foremost organization I can think of in Suriname, um, the uh, organ the Association of Indigenous Chiefs in Suriname, and this um, this organization represents all the indigenous chiefs of all the different. Um, uh, villages in Suriname, and uh, with their guidance, I began the work. And the work involved, to start with, uh, really getting to know the lay of the land, knowing, knowing what tribes are where, um, how these communities um, have have persisted and existed for, for for as long as they have, but also um, to understand what indigenous people who are now part of these the the, the city fabric. Um, how they live their lives, people in Paramaribo, and there's a, a whole range of experiences, you know, from the traditional uh, lifestyle in the rainforest uh, to urban life in in Suriname's capital.
1: Uh, you must be th- so thrilled and and pleased with yourself that you've reconnected.
2: Uh, yes, uh, and I should be clear that the the work I've done for my book has been. Uh, so far, with the Indigenous people, uh, not with the Maroons. Uh, That's a whole different chapter, so to speak, that um, would require a lot more time and attention, I feel.
1: If you were to say to somebody, yes, go to Suriname, how -hmm. would you fill in the dots? Go to Suriname, but?
2: I would say go to Suriname, explore both what is available in the city of Paramaribo, which is a really amazing multicultural um you know uh, mosaic uh, people from you know of, of the creole and maroon um you know descent um people of african um the diaspora, uh, as well as people from from Indian and and Indonesian diaspora, Chinese. You'll find even uh, some Lebanese uh, shops in Suriname that sell textile, or you'll find uh, a little Brazil, so to speak, you know, um, Brazilians who've come to Suriname, especially for the gold mining, who've now got their own neighborhoods. Uh, You'll find such an amazing multicultural, um, uh, you know, of a variety that is phenomenal for for a place in South America, um, but also, you know, do go visit the uh, the beautiful Amazonian rainforest that that we have. There is so much to see there, um, not just the maroon, but also the indigenous villages that are are open to to visitors, uh, indigenous operators who can take you to to indigenous villages that are. Are you know available to stay in for several days, and you can go and 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 see them on the coast, which is where you'll find sea turtles nesting uh, at certain times of the year, or you can go away in the uh, in, into the south um, in the in the rainforest, where you'll find aspects of culture among the indigenous that still exists, whether it's um, you know planting and fishing and and, and hunting. or or other aspects.
1: Fabulous, Milton, and he has given us stacks of links to Suriname and his book, which we'll share in show notes, along with ways to get in touch with us for story ideas or even feedback on the podcast.
0: Uh, Next week, our special episode on
2: sustainable and ethical travel. See you then. I'm off to Suriname. Bye. Bye.